Sometimes I feel like Ethel Merman. Uh-huh. Ethel Merman, because we're always going back to Gypsy and your love, <laughs> your kind of fanatical love of the musical Gypsy, which has become a theme on the podcast. Uh, your just obsession. Yeah. You're kind of obsessed with Ethel Merman and Mermanism, as we Mer- like Mermanism. to call it. That, that would be a great <laughs> cult. It, it is First actually there was a cult. Mormonism, and now there's Mermanism. No, Mermanism is a cult. You know, the, the elementary school that Crispin Glover went to in Mo- on oh, Mulholland yeah. was called the Merman School, and it right. was for people who were very different than everyone else. Thought I thought it was also for like intellectual gifted. gifted. Yeah, no, yeah, gifted. gifted. I, when I meant out there and, and alien, I meant gifted. That was ah, yeah, of, I see. I didn't pick That's up an my, obvious, I, didn't, I think that's oh, an obvious oh, understanding. I think I you're see. somehow, you know, your lack of euphemism. pop culture, your lack of uh, social media and pop culture knowledge sometimes comes back to bite you in the ass. Really? I, I'm not sure that that actually is what, what just happened, but... No, no, I just like to, I just like you, to you point just like that to bring, out. You just like to point that out, sort of irrespective of anything. Irrespective of anything. I like to point out that... Why is irrespective a word, but irregardless isn't a word, even though now except it is, it is a word. now. Yeah, except now yeah. it is. I know. So it's not, we can no longer have bit, that conversation. But that's very confusing. That was it, it was confusing. It was confusing. Locks in the Bagel is a production of Kenjamin Media, a curated series of conversations about things that matter. For more information about our podcast, please go to KenjaminMedia.com. But you know, it's interesting. My my father. Here's the thing. One of the, the other pieces of what I got from my father. My father hated confrontation. Your father was the king of confrontation, right? He he demanded confrontation in some ways. Like he relished it. It seemed to me mm-hmm. that was part of the argumentative, lawyery mm-hmm. aspect of who he was, and then the control aspect of it. You know, mm-hmm. bend other people to his will. I think on mm-hmm. oversimplification, but right? Yeah. And for people who who don't know my dad, if you imagine. If you imagine Donald, someone basically a clone of Donald Trump, except except brilliant and with a lot less money, and Jewish and Jewish, and Jewish. That was my dad. Yeah, but who thought he had lot lot more money, probably, but who acted like he had all well, the money. Just like Donald, he was well, pretty, just like Donald Trump. Donald Trump well, thinks he's got more money than he does. Yeah, but your father had a lot of money. I mean, again, relative to Bill Gates, he didn't, but relative to ninety nine percent of the people, he did. So. Yeah. So um, he was a man of privilege and acted like it. But my father didn't like confrontation at all. In fact, he avoided it in ways that I didn't really even understand until I was in my 40s and, and learning some of the history of my father's experience. He avoided it in 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 ways that were very hurtful, like the, the whole life insurance thing he didn't tell anybody about until after he was dead and they found out. And that became a huge fight and just a destruction of the whole family, whatever was left of it. I mean, it was things like that, though. My father just couldn't. You know, and again, like you could argue, it came from a, a, a decent, uh, came from a place of insecurity and fear, but it didn't come from malice, mm-hmm. right? He didn't want to hurt people. Mm-hmm. Like he did, he went out of his way not to hurt people and not realizing that by not being direct with people, he was very much hurting them. Mm-hmm. Um, he just didn't want to be around for the hurt, I guess, in that respect. He didn't see it. I don't think he saw it that way, but that's, that was the impact of it. Uh, it was very hurtful to a lot of people. And that, that was true throughout his life. I mean, he avoided situations, he left situations, he, both personally and professionally, that um, I only came to understand years later. Uh, you know, here's an interesting tidbit about my father. There are, two, there are two aspects of my father's experience that I didn't know when I was younger. Well, I did know one of them, but, but my father never graduated from college. 
But I thought he did my whole life. He went to Berkeley, and he went three and a half years to Berkeley, by the way. He quit in the final semester before graduation. Now, I'm not sure why he actually quit college. I know he, 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 what I heard was that he quit to take a job. He got a job with what was IBM, basically, at the time. Um, and it was a really good job, so he quit. I'm not sure why he quit the semester before he was supposed to graduate to take a job. Maybe it was a money issue with my fa- his parents. I don't know. I never heard the story. I never asked about it, and it's, you know, all those people are dead now. But I'm pretty sure he never told anybody he didn't. And I'm I'm not sure he lied about it. He may have lied about it. Or he just may have omitted it. It just wasn't something that sort of he hid in some ways, um, which is I just found interesting. He left college and, to join international business machines. <laughs> yeah, IBM, which was the, like the biggest company in the world at the time, by the way. Yeah. So, I mean, it was like a great opportunity, I guess. It was just interesting. I mean, maybe graduating just wasn't that important in the 50s in the, in the way it seems now to people. It may just not have been that big a deal. Like he got this great job offer and it was like, I'm going to go take this job. Maybe that was, maybe it was just as simple as that. You know, maybe we're trying to apply a modern context to something that just wasn't present in those days. So I I really have no idea and there's no way to find out. So I just thought it was interesting that it was something I didn't know, something he never told me when he, when I went to college, you know, it's just something that was never expressed. It just, I thought that again, it was like my father omitting or hiding parts of himself that he didn't want to be judged for. And he didn't want any conversation about, he just wanted, you know, didn't want to be engaged in that. That was one piece. And then the other piece, which was very pivotal, which we alluded to last week was that when I was 29 and my father went to prison, (laughs) that was, that was very impactful. My father, you know, where we grew up in this privileged world, I didn't know anybody. I mean, prison wasn't part of our experience. Like we didn't think like, oh, some percentage of the people in the school are going to go to jail. I didn't know criminals. That wasn't part of my experience as a child. Like it just wasn't part of our experience. And when I was 29, my daughter was born and my ex-wife and I were running a children's business. And then one day we were living in this really lovely Dude, it was a fourplex building. We were living in on one the of corner. the units on the downstairs. On the corner. No, there? no, that wasn't that one. That was that was later. That was a re, that was an inc- that Art Deco unit on in uh, like near the Grove. Cochrane, incredible. Was. Yeah, it was Cochrane. It was actually on Cochrane, the corner of Cochrane and Six. That was the most beautiful place I've ever lived in my life. It was so beautifully done. But no, it wasn't that place. This was on Eastbourne near the Mormon Temple, and we lived in this. It was very big. It was sim- similar to the place on Cochrane. It was the older building that had those huge rooms. You know, it was a huge living room and a huge dining room, which we never used, but like huge and a big kitchen and and we were sitting there with the baby and me and and uh and cheryl and somebody else was there i can't remember if it was cheryl's cousin or somebody and there was a knock at the door and I opened the door and it was two fbi agents i don't know if you've ever had the experience of, of opening your door to fbi agents yeah i mean again this was this was a terrifying moment for me and i didn't all i knew of my father's business was that he ran this business that was like uh they made like executive gift products. They made that pin pression thing that everyone loved in those years. And they made all these products. And he had a partner who was a narcissist and a very powerful kind of, you know, man who made a lot of enemies because he was yelled at people a lot, although he was also sweet. I mean, in many ways. Um, and I cared about him. But he, and my father was like the even keeled money guy and, you know, the, the accountant-y kind of guy. And he, the other guy was the flamboyant, you know, well, it was this partnership they had for many years. And the FBI comes in and they tell me, and they, then they just tell me this story about how my father is being, is in trouble for tax issues. And I can't even remember the whole thing. It was, it was like, it's the first I had heard of it. I mean, I was freaked out beyond belief. And I, I tried to stay very calm in the moment. I remember offering them like iced tea or sodas or something. I'm like, hey, do you guys, I was being flippant like I was a lot in those days. Mm-hmm. Hey, do you guys want a soda? Are you allowed to drink? You want a cocktail? I'm sure I said something like that. 
And they're like, no, you need to talk to us. And I'm like, well, I think I think I should call my father, or maybe my father's attorney before I say anything. That was like my initial response because I watched a lot of TV and I was pretty smart. Um, mm-hmm. And so like they were there. I don't even remember. They were there for like 25 minutes and I called my father and then my, my father's a, put me onto his attorney who called me. And I, I just remember this conversation I had on the phone with my father's attorney. He said, don't say anything. And then I, I remember saying this so vividly. I was like, I don't know anything. Why can't I just say, I literally remember saying this on the phone. It's funny what you remember in a moment. I hadn't thought of this in 20 years. And I remember saying to my father's attorney on the phone, I don't know anything. Why can't I just tell them that? He said, do you want to get your father in trouble? Do you want your father to go to jail? <laughs> like, uh, I, I never met this guy, by the way. I'm just on the phone with this guy who's an attorney and he's telling me all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no. And he's like, so just don't do anything. I'm like, Okay. And that was like it. And then that was just so overwhelming. And then like I, my father said, you know, they were just, you know, it's just, I don't even remember what my father said, to be honest with you. And when I asked him what was going on, he sent my father to prison for 10 months. So my father and his then go to this minimum security prison in Boron, which is a couple hours out of LA, up near Lancaster. And that, uh, and that was just disorienting to me in so many ways, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, the sense of insecurity that and, and lack of safety I felt from my father as a man and in the culture was profound, but I always always had sort of the backstop of my father. At least he was there, and he was, again, always sweet to me. And then it just all disappeared. Mm. Like, he went to prison, and that was the same. While he was in prison, I, I asked my wife for a divorce and quit my business. So that was kind of like a very dramatic moment in September 1st of, what year, 1995. I think it was 95. Yeah. And that was just overwhelming mm. to me. Shameful. I mean, it caused me to retreat in so many ways and just be less sort of willing to look at the world, look at myself. I just like hid. It was very scary and overwhelming. And mm. I didn't know what to do about it. Yeah. You did not go into therapy. No, I did not. Because for me at the time, there was no context for therapy. Mm. I, In retrospect, I wish I had gone into therapy at that time. I wish I had gone to speak to somebody. I mean, the only therapy I had been in at that point was group was a couple therapy with my ex-wife, and that never went well. Mm-hmm. We tried three different times with three different therapists, and it always just didn't seem to go well. I mean, part of that was because I, at the time, I was incapable of going beneath sort of the character I had created in the world, right? So I, I, wasn't, I wasn't able to access my real lived experience in a way that would have been helpful. Mm -hmm. So it wouldn't have been helpful for me at the time. In retrospect, if I could, again, if I could have understood it at the time, it would be helpful. But if we, if I'd gone to therapy at the time, I'm not sure I would have been able to break through that intense wall and barrier that I had created as a child to survive. Mm. That was still very powerful and very strong at that time. Yeah. Yeah. That Um, had to, that had to be so scary and, and shocking. I mean, was it shocking? Yeah. Because right? like, if shocking. this had happened to me, I'd be like, mm-hmm, not surprised. Right. No, I was surprised by my father. And, and I, I guess in some ways I was disappointed in my father, but, but it wasn't profound disappointment because, again, my father had never been anything but sweet and kind to me. And when I came to understood what he had done, it was the same, it came out of the same kind of, insecurity and and fear of confrontation like all he had to do was simply say honestly like this is what the company is as they were going to the public shareholders and this is what we've been doing and he just was afraid to be honest and he and that's what it was it wasn't some malicious like made offy kind of conspiracy it was just not it was just simple stupid fear i mean it was fear and stupid it's bad 
description. But he was afraid and he was insecure about it. And so he just pretended and lied about it. Um, and it was such a stupid, I mean, the lie was stupid because it was so unnecessary. Maybe they wouldn't have gotten the money to go public and maybe then they would have had to do something different. And I guess he was so afraid of, of again, being not being seen as the pr- provider and the guy taking care of everybody mm-hmm. that it caused him to treat this way. But it was just, again, it was, it was, it was so small in some ways. And that felt also embarrassing to me and shameful. And I mean, the whole thing just felt shameful to me because I didn't know how to take take in that kind of experience mm-hmm. and not feel like there was some something it, it was something wrong with me in some way. Mm-hmm. You know, this was my father, and so there must have been something wrong with me too. I mm-hmm. and so I didn't want that to be seen. I mean, I was hiding in plain sight and all those years anyway. I was already trying to not be seen, even though I was out in front and very public. But this just made it added a layer that made it even more painful and 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 like felt more like I was living two completely different lives, you know, this fake life in public and then this real life that I couldn't talk to anybody, couldn't share with anybody, and didn't know what to do about. It, so it just kind of ate me alive, mm-hmm. um, and I couldn't stay in my marriage. I couldn't keep staying in my business. I mean, literally, all I could do <laughs> was take care of my daughter, which is what I did. I became a full stay-at-home parent with Mariana. And that was the saving grace of the whole experience because being with Mariana allowed me to feel like I mattered, allowed me to feel meaningful, loved, and connected, and like I was doing something meaningful, which always mattered to me, Um, but nobody was judging me. Although I was hugely judged for that role Mm -hmm. as a stay-at-home parent, everybody was judging me because nobody thought that was the right thing for me to do, from my ex-wife to my mother to everybody in my life. Why are you parenting? You should go get a job. Parenting is not an important job for a man of your age. You should go work. But that was a different kind. It was funny. I was being attacked on multiple levels, Mm. psychologically and and emotionally. But the attacks I took for being a stay-at-home parent at least were mitigated by the fact that I felt like I was doing something and I was with my daughter, which felt like the most meaningful thing in the world to do. So that had that aspect to it. Whereas the attack on my identity for being shamed for having a father who went to prison and for all the stuff mm-hmm. that came with that, there was no mitigation for that. That was just pain that I had to internalize and, and keep to myself because I didn't know how to not do that. Mm. That's and that you lasted. Because you didn't share that with me. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah, I didn't. I couldn't share that with anybody. I didn't know how, and 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 that happened when I was twenty nine. And then what? I went to. I started graduate school when I was thirty nine. So from twenty nine to thirty nine, basically, I was living in that horrific, painful, isolated, shameful inner experience that I did, couldn't share, and basically removed myself from the world. That's when you and I stopped speaking in that period, right? Mm-hmm. You and I stopped speaking that period. I quit my marriage. I quit my business. I was taking care of my daughter. I was I was trying to hide from the world as much as humanly possible mm-hmm. because I was in so much pain that I thought that if any of that got out, I would be eviscerated by it. That was my experience of it at the time. Mm-hmm. It was a nightmare. That's the only way I can think to describe it. Yeah. Yeah. What might have been different? I mean, if you had been able to share that with even one person. Well, I think I think everything might have been different, I, I, but again, like it's easy to look at a time and say, like, well, if I had just been able to do this, it would have changed it. I just at the time I didn't have an I didn't have act I didn't know how to do that. There was no path to that for me, you know. Uh, and because of the way I was raised, again, the feeling alone and unsafe, and sort of having to hide all of those feelings as a child, that's what I learned to do. Mm. 
You know, I didn't learn that as an, I didn't as an adult, just as a 29 year old decide like, oh, I'm not going to, I'm going to hide my emotions and not share this with anybody. You know, I learned that was all the, like you talked about all the years of learned behavior from three to four to five to 10 to 15, all those years of not having a safe place to share emotion and feeling and, and my experience with anybody and get any feedback, positive feedback for any of that. Mm-hmm you know, had me at 29 not having any other way out of that, mm-hmm. feeling trapped in that, mm. no, right? There was, no, there was no access to a different way. Oh, I'm sorry, I couldn't, you know, share some of that. Yeah, me. really, it's all your fault. Mm. <laughs> well, you want to hear the story about when my father was arrested? I Wait, was, can we, can we do, before yeah. you get to the playful story about your father, uh, can we finish up the deep emotional and painful oh, yeah, story yeah, yeah, of mine? Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, I thought, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't think about this often. Like, you just asked the question. I don't think about, like, well, what would have been different if I had been able to talk about it or if I had been able to share it or if there... Um, I mean, I think, I think pretty much my whole life would have been different because I, I literally think I spent 10 years living in that shame from 29 to 39. I mean, the years with Mariana, and then I started working for at Imagistic and you know, Kevin, and that was sort of at, at the tail end of that time. And then, And then in my late 30s, something in me finally said, like, I can't do this anymore. Like, I, I was maybe 35 years old, and I had been living my life for the previous 30 years in this hidden, shameful, depressed, to give it a label, sad, lonely, isolated box, mm-hmm. and then pretending to be the exact opposite of that in the world, which mm-hmm. was exhausting. Mm-hmm. I mean, exhausting. Uh, and yet, again, like I said, I don't have an addictive personality. I never got into drugs or liquor or, you know, food was my thing and cake. And so I, my weight would fluctuate. That was really the coping mechanism for me. And that's not a coping mechanism that particularly gets noticed that well. I have a big frame and so I gained weight. But people are like, oh, he's a little heavy now. No big deal. You know, I always, I always joked in this period, like if I had been a drug addict or an alcoholic, somebody would have paid attention to that and I would have been in a program and seen and maybe had an opportunity mm-hmm. to change or to mm-hmm. pivot. But because my particular coping mechanism was still hidden mostly, was still something not seen, not culturally seen, nobody noticed it. It's not like I didn't have people in my life. I did. It's just nobody noticed it because I became sort of, I mean, <laughs> so sad. Uh, it makes me want to cry. You know, hiding my identity and all the pieces of me that I felt were not acceptable was sort of like the main job I think I had in my first 30 years of life. Mm -hmm. Like that's what I learned as a kid and a teen. That's what I learned from my father, sadly. This program is about fathers, but I think what I learned most from my father is to hide who I was. Well, I mean, that's a parallel. I mean, the thing that you said to me in high school all the time, all the time, never let anybody know that you don't know something. And that's essentially about hiding. Yeah, I mean that that's godfather that's half godfather training and half my father literally. That's funny, but I mean that was aw- I mean that was like so much of my knowledge from the god watching the godfather all that those years. But so much of that like hiding. It's so interesting too because one of the great lessons I've learned when I was older in life that I wish and I think this is a lesson. This is the one one of the main things I try and talk to my daughter about, and I think she is much better at it in her twenties than I ever was. Is the the best thing you can do is is acknowledge all of who you are, your struggles, your strength. They called it her school stretches and strengths, mm-hmm. right? 
your strengths. It's important to acknowledge your strengths because often we diminish that and we only see the bad. It's important to focus on what you're good at and what you feel is meaningful to you, I think. But it's also important to be honest about what you struggle with emotionally on every level and to share and, and to what we say and there, socialize that struggle. That's the phrase I've used for a long time with her is you have to socializing that struggle allows you to not feel alone in it, mm. allows you to f- not and to not feel inadequate in it, right? My feelings of inadequacy are like there was something so wrong with me that I couldn't acknowledge it to the world or else I would just, begin be eviscerated. Mm-hmm. Um, and, just and, and to from, normalize it. It normalizes it yeah. as well. Yeah. Right. That's exactly right. It's like you're not, you're not the only one who struggles. Mm-hmm. But I always felt, because I was told as a kid, because I was so precocious, like how special I was and how special I was and how special I was, that if somebody knew that I wasn't that special, that that would be it. Yeah, well, be and, and that goes exactly to Carol Dweck's position. She wrote that book, Mindset, and that's exactly what she talks about. There's a fixed, that's a fixed mindset, not a growth mindset. And it sounds mm-hmm. like you have really instilled in your own daughter what Carol Dweck calls it, a growth mindset, right? Well, I've tried. I mean, I, I, I think that it's a mixed bag, and my record on that is mixed. I mean, it's funny. We were talking recently with about a friend of ours and about telling their kids that they did drugs when they were younger, right? And he's like, well, I told her I did it, but I didn't tell her how much I did it, mm-hmm. right? It's like, my daughter knows a lot about my struggle and my childhood, my experience. She doesn't know everything because it just felt like too much, and it felt like it wasn't her struggle to bear. I think some of the struggles she's had with her mother is that for a number of years, she felt like her mother told her too much, like made her a friend instead of her daughter too much. And I, I get that and I understand that. But I, I think because of that relationship she had with her mother and because of my own thing, I think I've tried to sort of, and maybe in some ways that has kept me apart from my daughter, even though I think we're pretty close. I mean, it's still, there's still parts of me I think I've kept a part of that outside of that because I thought it was just too much and it wasn't it wasn't her role to to play. Right. You know, as a parent, like, it wasn't her role to take on my shit. All of it. Some mm-hmm. of it. Because that's part of knowing somebody. And so I don't know if I've struck the balance, and I don't know how the balance that I've struck with that is whether that's right or wrong or good or bad. You know, I'm just not sure. So, yeah. Yeah, I really like that expression. Socialize the struggle. It's quite so. Quite yeah, me nice. too. Yeah. Love that. I think I got that from Michael White. I think I heard Michael White say that. If if I didn't get it directly from him, yeah. I got it from his work yeah. and the study of narrative therapy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think David, my mentor, David Marston, who's a brilliant therapist, used to say that. But mm-hmm. I think I don't know. Maybe I'm attributing to him because he just was very helpful. Maybe I don't know. But that socializing the struggle is such a meaningful. Mm idea to put us in relationship in community and to it's the opposite of isolation and alone yeah and i think it's so important and god if i could go back and tell the five-year-old me that little boy who was just or the 10-year-old me i should say that little boy who would sit on the floor of his shower at night and cry with the shower on so nobody would hear me because i was so lonely and so afraid and so not knowing what to do and had no one to talk to about it. I wish I could do that. Mm. Save that boy forty years of pain. So yeah. I'm so sorry you went through that. Yeah. So besides that, Mrs. Lincoln, how did you like the play? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, the thing about the thing about the Lincoln line, which I've always loved. I always loved that line. So besides that, Mrs. Lincoln, what do you think of the play? I think that you can use that in so many circumstances. Um, Learned that almost, from my dad, by the way. Yeah. Really. 
Uh-huh. In what in a, in a very ugly it's the first time I or? ever heard anybody say it. Uh huh. Sure. Because your dad loved to always talk about Lincoln and irony. That's my memory of him. He was he was big on Lincoln and irony. Yeah. No. <laughs> anyway, so but the point is, is so that that line though about what did you think of the play? Like when I think of life as a play, I think in the same vein of what we've been just talking about is like no. My issue was that nobody taught me what the rules were. Nobody taught me how to navigate the play, how to rehearse the play, how to engage on stage. Like, I was kind of left on my own. You know, my mother was off trying to figure out her experience of coming from the six stepfathers and the feeling inadequate and that whole thing. And she sort of backed away in my teen years. And my father, as we talked about, you know, would just kind of left me on my own. He's like, you're a, you're a man, basically, and here's some money and go take care of yourself. And I think about some of the things, like one of the things that popped into my head this week as I was thinking about this was like when I was a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old, I took myself to the doctor and the dentist. I remember going to those things by myself, not with a parent. And I think about my own daughter's experience. Like, even when she was 17, like, I can't imagine her. She had surgery for her mouth at one point, having her teeth pulled. I can't imagine her ever going to the doctor or the dentist alone and not her mother or I not wanting or, you know, just assuming that we were going to take her. Yeah, especially for something serious like that. Yeah. I mean, doesn't that sound strange to you, like, as a as an 11 or 12-year-old, that I would just go on my own? Like, yeah, I got it. 100% strange. I, I could imagine a 17-and-a-half-year-old yeah. going to the dentist for a cleaning by herself, maybe, but... Right. And as an 18-year-old, when I went when I went to college and had a physical that was required for the application, I did that by myself. But I mean, again, I was a senior in high school at that point with my own right. car. But when right. I was 12, 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14, you know, I mean, again, it wasn't out of malice, right? My dad was like, he, it just never, it never popped into his head to take me. Yeah, I think it's important at this point to say, I think we had the same dentist, Dr. Bukarski. Yeah, Dr. Bukarski on, on in the Roxanne building on, Ro- on yeah. Roxbury. Roxbury, yeah. yeah. My memory of him was he was very handsy. No, that's not true. <laughs> no, that's not true at all. I don't remember that at all if his family is listening. I remember him as just being like a very kind, ge- genial I remember kind of he had older a lot fellow. of saliva. A lot of saliva. I don't remember that, but I remember they gave us those little sort of very cheap plasticky toys. Like there was one with a ball that you were so that little cup thing. It was the plastic version, tiny, and it didn't never worked. I just remember <laughs> no. you always got like a little. In those days, that was cool. Like you got a little toy. Today, like if you don't give, you know, nobody would accept that as, well, but he, as a parting this gift. To me. Why, why, when you walked out of the dentist, did you get a lollipop? That mm-hmm. makes no sense. Why would you get that? Was it sugar-free? Was it teaching you I a doubt lesson? It. I don't maybe, think so Maybe that wasn't the dentist. Maybe that was the doctor. No, maybe I think he got a lollipop at the dentist, too. I, I think he probably got candy, too, at some point. Yeah, times of change. Well, that's like, if you watch old TV shows of doctors, doctor smoking. visits, they're smoking during the visit. <laughs> the doctor is actually smoking during the visit. That was just normal. Yeah, yeah. that's some crazy shit right there. Okay, All right, let's I, I want, pivot I want, back. I want, I, no, I want to pivot oh, go back. Ahead. I, no, I want to pivot back. Oh, you pivot. I was going to pivot, pivot, but if you want to pivot. No, no, I want to pivot back. I you do, pivot. I want to, but I was thinking about the metaphor that you just used. You know, I was thinking more like your dad didn't tell you what role you were you were playing yeah, in the play. right. That's well said, actually. See, you're always better at this than I was anyway. Fuck you. You know? Yeah. <laughs> no, he didn't. Like, I didn't. I didn't know the role I was playing, and so- We each have our strengths, Kenny. Yeah, I appreciate that. I, I didn't know the role I was playing, and so it left me just terrified and, and sort of drowning. I think the metaphor that I always used in my head was that I was just like in the middle of a pool, like drowning. Not drowning. Like, I could dog paddle, but there was no side. I couldn't get to a side. Mm, like, I couldn't mm-hmm. get anywhere for stability. I couldn't reach on to anything for foundation. So mm-hmm. I was always dog paddling. Mm-hmm. And the level of exhaustion, emotional exhaustion, and, and PTSD and that ensued from that was profound. 
and not addressed for multiple decades. Yeah, I mean, and, and I mean, t- for that metaphor, if you want to yeah. switch metaphors, it's like please switch away. Well, you switched. I didn't switch. You I, switched. I am a switch. You switched. Let's you not switched get from, from. You're more of a top. But anyway, let's move on. <laughs> you know, I mean, your dad. So heard. You, you know, your dad didn't teach you that. Like, hey, you can float on your back and you can t- right. take a rest. Here's how you actually swim. You don't have to dog paddle. I mean, there are all of these things that your dad right. just, again, not from malice. You know, I remember my dad. And my dad, of course, had a. We, we've established this pretty big dick, but. I remember sort of being caught in a riptide in San Diego and screaming mm. and calling for help. And and he was on the beach reading. And I finally actually, through sheer will and just mm-hmm. powerful swimming as best mm. I could, got out. And I was mm-hmm. said, like, how come you didn't come in to get me? And he said, oh, I thought you were doing great. And I remember at the time, I felt pretty pissed off about that. Mm-hmm. But I'm thinking now, like... It probably looked like I was just doing a lot of swimming out there, and he probably couldn't hear me saying I needed help. Maybe. So I don't think, yeah, I don't think your dad didn't teach you to swim out of malice. It probably looked like, oh, you know, look, he's doing great. He's in the pool. He's doing his his thing. His ability to measure was what was at fault. Mm -hmm. He wasn't, he never learned how to measure or see. He had, he had a very low emotional intelligence level in that respect, I would say. Mm -hmm. Like it wasn't part of the male experience for the most part, emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. You know, and then when you learn that as a ten-year-old boy, and you respond again by hiding all the emotion or suppressing all the emotion or just ignoring it or pretending like it doesn't exist, but you deal with the consequences of it, right? And then it repeats over and over and over and beats you over the head for decades. That's the problem with it. That's the mm-hmm. whole PTSD of it. It made me. It made me think then, like about. So we've talked about your experience growing up and all of those experiences with your father and my experiences growing up, and so what I wanted to talk about now is sort of how it all ended like the end-of-life experiences your father. We talked a little about your end-of-life experience in the last episode, which was very painful, um, about trying to protect him from himself, trying to save your brother, and all of those kind of very heartfelt and beautiful hope, hopes that you held, and his just punching you in the face, metaphorically. And, yeah. not oh, that, and that was a that. long time before his end-of-life, by the way. I yeah, mean, I'm, I'm looking at it as a sort of a progression yeah, yeah. from yeah. that to the end, sort of mm-hmm. the, that how that for for you in that sense it was a long drawn out kind of process oh, yeah. right the sort of end of your father's life it, as as the book of that it was a long drawn out process whereas mm-hmm. for me it was more dramatic and acute and also more more engaging and bad it was a, it was a it was a lovely experience in many ways for me the end of my father's life was was a much better experience for me than the beginning of my life because I wasn't at that point there was no there was you know my uh, there was no expectation of my father being a father to a child anymore now my father got sick my father got cancer one day out of the blue and his wife of 30 years was already in the process of dying of cancer and couldn't take care of him and so I I did I quit what I was doing I moved out of my apartment I moved in with my father and spent the last 7 months of his life being with him 24 hours a day 7 days a week and initially taking him to a lot of doctors appointments and the cancer stuff and the treatments and then just sitting with him you know talking for hours and hours and hours and we had a lot of interesting conversations we didn't have a lot of conversations so much about I mean I didn't really I didn't feel the need at the time and there was nothing to be gained for me I didn't think we didn't talk a lot about my childhood and what was lacking and how he wasn't the father that would have been helpful for me because it's interesting I didn't really I didn't really blame I never blamed my father for being who he was it felt just like he was a man of his time 
You know, it never affected me in that way. So even now, like when I think about my father, I don't think, God, he was, you know, I don't have any negative emotions. And I never really did. I, I sure I wish he had given me and taught me things. And I wish that those things had been different. But, but it was, ne- it's never been this kind of emotional rage or anger toward him. I've never had a lot of anger. And, and in the last year of life, though, I have to say, like, we spent a lot of time talking about a lot of things, emotional things. Not so much the childhood as much. It's just about like his experience of the world and my experience and the things I struggled with. And, and he was able to sort of listen, I think, in a different way. Um, maybe because there was not, nothing, no interest in trying to change it or make it better anymore. Maybe he just grew and, and just accepted and heard me in different ways. So I, I felt very heard by my father, I think, a lot in the last years of his life. And he, he needed me. I mean, he told me like he couldn't have survived those last seven months without me. Uh, and he really, and I really saw the appreciation he had for what I did for him. I mean, for me, it was never really even a choice. It was just like, my father's sick, he needs to be taken care of. And I'm really the only one in our family who's capable of that and who wants to do that. Like, I wanted to do that for my father. You said that you shared a lot with your father about your experiences of life. Oh, yeah. Right? You, yeah, yeah. you shared your subjective experiences. Mm-hmm. And that you felt that he heard you in a different way, and that you felt witnessed. And I'm wondering, right. how how did that happen? I mean, did did he say something to you? Yeah, I'll tell you exactly how that happened. You know, it's interesting because through a lot of my life, when I would talk to my father, as I was growing or I was learning new things, I was evolving, I would say things to him, and he would sort of respond with, you know, not not arrogance or narcissism or or. But more like sort of like he didn't really get it. He wasn't really interested in it. It was more like, oh, yeah, whatever. Okay. Or or be give me some cliche kind of response. A lot of it was like kind of some more, more of like a pablum kind of like pop culturally cliched response to my sort of deep experience. And so, I, you know, I always found that annoying. But at least, you know, he always was there. Like I could always call him and tell him what was going on. And he'd give me some kind of cliched, simplistic response to it. But that was okay. But I mean, it never felt like I was being particularly hurt. He didn't really get it. But in the last year of his life, he, he, kind of, he kind of stopped with those kind of responses and just listened and seemed to take it in differently. I mean, his reaction to it was different. He, he sort of processed it, you know, like he was allowed himself or chose to process what I was saying in a way that suggested to me that he was thinking about it, that he was open to that or that he appreciated that I had this different experience than he had. Well, and so that I, it was a very different reaction than he had had the previous 30 or 40 years. Yeah. So I, I guess what I'm, I'm trying to get at is, did, was that just a feeling you had that he was processing it? Or was he saying something that let well, no, that's, know I that said, he was processing it? I said he, w- he would respond to it differently. He would be curi- a little curious about it. He would say, oh, that's interesting. You know, he would, he would acknowledge it in little ways. In, but very differently than he had ever responded before. So I think he's just he was just more open to it, or just more open to the idea that maybe life wasn't exactly what he thought it was, or the way he lived it, you know, maybe there were other ideas that were meaningful, as opposed to just sort of poo-pooing those things, that which he may have done in the past. And so that was, that was meaningful. I mean, it's interesting that we had such different experiences of the end of our father's lives. You know, my father sort of welcomed my help to take care of him. And, you know, your, fa- your father was never in the position that you could take care of him physically in the way that I did with my father and some of the things I did um, to take care of my father. But he was very much in a position 
to let you take care of him had he chosen to do that and he chose to not do that. You know, it's funny because I always I always think back to when we were in our 20s and people would say something about my father and you would always chime in like, oh, Barry, he's such a great guy. Mm-hmm. Like you had this just, just, just general sense of my father being a nice man because your interactions with him were nice. He was always friendly. He was just a good guy. He was a good guy. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think my father understood what I was doing as helpful. <laughs> you know, <laughs> really? That was not. I mean, the know. cutting you out of the will and basically telling you that he doesn't. He, you know, he's not proud I, of you. I, I don't. I, but I don't. That's how you took that. Well, but I mean, at the time, I mean, you said he, he, my dad wouldn't let me do that, or what? You know, I, I don't know that that's. I don't know that it was. You know, I was taking him to his doctor's appointments. And, and, did you and, feel like he appreciated that? Did you? Did he say things to you like, "God, I can't tell you how much I love you that you do this with me, son. I really appreciate you for it." Oh no, of course. I'm just saying, like, how did, did you? I don't really think you ever felt particularly seen or valued in, oh, in no, taking I, care I, of it. Oh no, I well, well, no, but but I, him. but but my right, but my point is, I don't, I don't think that he saw that as being taken care of by me so then and if he didn't see it that way he would have no no reason to say any of those things to me and i could have i could have spent time i oh i after learning about your experiences with your dad and even listening now i mean i'm filled with a kind of um envy is not maybe not exactly the right word but uh, you know uh, sadness i guess or or, you know Mm -hmm. that i i wasn't able to have that well this is so trite but uh, you know i i could i know ne- i never had that kind of experience with my dad where that you did we're just sitting around having kind of heart to hearts i just couldn't do it just couldn't yeah. do it we, we didn't see things he wasn't a good guy and i just i anytime i had an opportunity to share something meaningful with him it just it just left me disappointed usually and and you know yeah well it's interesting too that he my father had a chance because of his cognitive abilities to pivot in some ways like right to to sort of grow or to 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 take stock of himself and his life in a way that sometimes people do in, at the end of their life. Mm-hmm. He had a chance because he had his mental faculties to do that and luck and and he got sick and so I had a chance to take care of him in a way that very few people usually do between father and son. And so we spent this very unique 7 months together 24 hours a day. It's rare. I think that's very rare and unusual that one the you know a son of my age is was will, would be willing to do that and two that a father would accept that and that all those things combined your father i mean this talks to, back to the hope conversation and the ideas we talked about last week that he never really was in, seemed interested in pivoting or changing or or taking a different look at himself or at you and the alzheimers you know never really gave him a chance to anyway but yeah. again that's kind of like a hope that was maybe a tiny yeah. bit, but nobody really expected it, right? Yeah, no, no, that that that's was that's a fantasy. That, yeah, that I was mean, just a fantasy. it's a fantasy. That's just a dream that some of us had. Yeah, to quote Johnny Mitchell. But yeah, I was thinking about your advanced years and, and <laughs> taking care, of, taking care of your the thing that you my said advanced about, years, not my yeah, father's the, advanced the, years. Well, you 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 said that you know that you in your advanced years got to take <laughs> in, care of your in father. In his advanced years, I think was the phrase that I used. His advanced years. I don't think you're hearing well in your advanced years. Do you have the headphones on your ears or are they on some other part of your body? Cause am I wearing pants? <laughs> I am definitely not wearing pants, but that's a whole other conversation. Why do you think that this persists for so long with people? Why Why? why is Which this thing? thing with fathers and sons? And, you know, fathers and daughters, mothers and daughters. I mean, but 
But let's just talk fathers yeah. and sons right now. Um, well, because I think it persists uh, through, through a lifetime forever. and forever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one, I think because you're always your father's son, like that role, that reality doesn't shift. So whether you're five or 55, you're always your father's son. And, and I think, here's the thing that I think that just from observation and from talking to people and clients and things over the years, I think if you grow up feeling that your father, you know, it's interesting, a lot of people in our culture see their father as their hero, a lot of sons, right? You, you listen to a lot of people who had really good relationships with their fathers or what looks like a really good relationship, and they talk about their father as a hero, and they talk about, and as they get older, they, their role shifts from, you know, the traditional hierarchy of the father taking care of the son to friends in some ways, you know, the, the father and son who will golf or the father and son who will do things together as adults. And I think, I think that bond for people that have good relationships, you know, is enhanced as the, as the relationship shifts. So it just adds layers. It adds new, beautiful, like rich layers to the relationship. And I think for someone like me and for you, and you know, we each have our own different experiences of our fathers, but people who didn't feel particularly close to their father or who weren't given the kind of, of love and connection and bonding, even if it wasn't emotional bonding, but the kind of traditional bonding, whether through sports or you know through activity, the kind of bonding that traditionally has occurred between men and fathers and sons, people who didn't get that are always chasing it because it feels like a, a norm. It feels like something we're told, we're taught from the earliest age that we should have and that will make us feel you know, whatever cultural language you want to use, make us feel whole, will make us feel normal, will make us feel like we matter. I mean, I think ultimately all of it is a chase toward we want to matter and we want to matter to the people who, who we love mm -hmm. because that's sort of the most meaningful experience of life. I would say that is the foundational meaning of human, ex human life is to matter to the people you love and vice versa. Mm, um, and so I yeah. think we chase that like a drug, like a heroin until the end, even if it's in, we're incapable of getting, like your chase of your father, to me is is a much richer example of that. You know, all that we talked about it last week, and you know, all that hope and always, you know, not talking to him for years and pulling away, and yet still holding out this hope. And you always, I mean, to my consternation, to my amazement, at many times, like you always were willing to try again. Like you always tried again, even when like that always. You know, in some ways, in those days, it pissed me off. It frustrated me. I felt like you were just about to get hit in, with, in the face with a bat again. Mm. It feels like an abuser's... What? I didn't know you felt that way. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would love to go back to, like, every year between 14 and 30 and have these conversations with you at the time of what I was feeling mm. about myself, about my own experience, my observations about you. That would have, that would have made for a very rich experience. Mm -hmm. I mean, I will say this better late than never. We could yeah. go to your grave having never had these experiences, these revelations, these conversations with people who you grew up with. Mm -hmm. So that's something meaningful. I think even at our so. age, it's meaningful. Yeah, super meaningful. I mean, especially for me to be able to have this with you at your advanced age, it's it's very, it's <laughs> yeah. very meaningful to me. Well, it's so interesting because you and I, interesting <laughs> history. Fuck you. You know, we were we literally people would talk about us like we were a married couple when we were teens. I mean, mm -hmm. we spent all of our time together in our teens and into our twenties. Uh, we spent so much time together, and yet, yeah, we were each growing or or not growing in ways that we didn't share because for all kinds of the reasons that we've talked about. 
which inevitably led to a split between us, like a dramatic parting that took like a decade of, of our lives apart from each other. But it's interesting, you know, it's like this coming back together in this last, whatever, nine years that we've sort of been rebuilding a friendship after mm-hmm. 10 or 12 years of not speaking to each other. Uh, when you, you know, very maliciously sent me that email and said, <laughs> our time together has ended in an email. It's like today breaking up with someone by text. You just sent me that email and said, our time together has ended. I, d- which, I didn't uh, say that. I didn't you say did, that. actually. I still have the email. And it sent me into such an emotional, like, again, it was just another, on top of the my father going to jail, my marriage breaking up thing, and then a few years later, you sort of ending our friendship. That really sent me, that that that's what eventually, I mean, one could argue that saved my life because, or because I either was going to kill myself in those years, or I was going to go to therapy and try and figure out what the fuck to do with my life in my mid-30s when my best friend didn't want to speak to me anymore. My dad had sort of betrayed everything that I knew. You know, my marriage ended and I had this daughter who needed a father who wasn't going to kill himself, basically. Um, And I don't talk about this a lot. In fact, I'm not sure I've ever ever actually talked about this out loud to anybody who wasn't a th- I'm not even sure I talked to my therapist when I used to go to therapy about this huh but I, I spent a lot of my yeah, I'm even hesitant to talk about this now but anyway what the fuck I spent a lot of my life between 10 and 35 thinking of suicide like a lot of my life mm, I didn't like so much of my life I mean like it was a constant thought for me for a long time and it was put off by the times when I was feeling good when I was in relationships or I was feeling meaningful or seen or but in the times that I wasn't, in between all that, I, I thought about it all the time. You know, it's interesting, too, because there's this idea in our culture, and we learn this as therapists, right? This idea that, well, if people have a plan, they're much more likely to do it. Like, you know, like, well, when somebody says they have suicidal ideation, which is the phrase in a therapy session, if they're just kind of talking about it generally, whatever, everybody talks about whatever, not wanting to be alive. But if they have a plan, then, right, we're supposed to take that more seriously, right? I mean that's the rule. I mean, that's, of, that's the rule, rule of, of thumb. thumb. And right. my ex- my experience is that most people who end up killing themselves don't really give you much of a heads up. Yeah, I mean because that's only one idea. Of, I mean this again this this idea that there's one right way to do anything. That's one idea about killing yourself. There are so many different. Some people do it spontaneously. Some people have an urge in a moment. They're walking across a bridge and they're like, I just don't want to live, and I just jump off the bridge. Like or that that moment. Right, or they have a gun. Availability of guns is a huge uh, determining factor in suicide. If somebody has a gun available to them, they're much more likely to use it than if they don't. Uh, but I, I mean, I thought about killing myself all the time. I mean, one of the saving graces for me was that I hate pain. The aversion to pain is so profound to me. Like, and and all the different ways that one can kill themselves seem painful. Like, and I never had access to a gun, and the, you know, so that. Well, I know, like the I know a couple of ways that, that wouldn't be. I mean, if you want me to, share <laughs> maybe we shouldn't talk about. Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> maybe you shouldn't be giving people in the public. I wasn't going like, to give people. I was just going to give you ways. some advice. Yeah, about but you know this. Here. You know this isn't a private conversation, right? People are hearing it. What? So maybe we shouldn't have. I know. I've been telling you all the time. It's just you and me. But we're actually doing a podcast. I know you're not aware of it, but now I'm telling you oh from telling Joshua for the first Honey, time. You're in a podcast. Honey. <laughs> she's going to walk into the room now. Jennifer's bed's going. She's going to be like, "What? What's wrong?" Is everything okay? Yeah. I mean, there was a, I, I wrote notes. I wrote suicide notes I didn't in my that. head, mostly. Occasionally I wrote oh. them out, but I, I, I wrote, I wrote so many different notes explaining to all the people in my life, like the reasons why some, some of those notes were out of sort of an anger at the time. Some of them were out of feeling unseen and wanting to sort of tell people like, God, I wish you had just seen me. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of them were just, just pure 
pain. Like, I just can't take this anymore feeling mm. this way, which eventually led me to go to therapy. Mm. I, didn't, I, I didn't know that, that, that you had written notes. I'm so sorry that I didn't I know. know that. You know, but See, I mean, one can... of the things that brought us, uh, I would say the thing that brought us closest after we had stopped speaking right. was when I talked to you on the phone. Oh, and, and you were in the Bay Area, and I was really scared about you and your, because I thought you wanted to. That was the only time I actually thought you you really wanted to kill yourself. I mean, that's what it sounded like. You you sounded like you wanted to kill yourself. Yes, yeah. And then I remember I was living in Seattle before I was in San Francisco, and we were you were in graduate school, and we were talking a lot about the kind of therapy that I was doing, and that you were learning about the narrative therapy. And I remember a bunch of conversations. No, that was meaningful. That. that was meaningful. I don't mean that th those weren't meaningful conversations. What I mean is then that's what brought <clears throat> you. Ended up bringing you to Los Angeles was that was that was that conversation, and then and then we ended up living together right. for two years or whatever that was. The and accumulation of that pain over you know thirty five years and of sort of not really dealing with that in a way that allowed me to move forward in a way that didn't sort of have it you know in that. In the response to the the post traumatic stress of that, of that those experiences in childhood, um, yeah, that led me to feel just very, very alone and very worthless and very much like, what's the point? You know, like I can't I can't work through this. I can't figure this out. I can't find a way to move forward. So now, yeah, now I've completely lost my train of thought. <laughs> what were we talking about? I, I was asking you why do you think that this endures that the stuff between fathers and oh, sons yeah. Yeah. endures. Um, and what do you think? What, how do you respond to what no, I, I said? I, I couldn't have said it better than you did. I, I think that the desire to matter to someone. It's interesting because you had this kind of, these kind of revelations as you were coming into your teen years and sort of seeing the world and trying to understand and find your own way and what was re felt right to you and who you wanted to be. And I had kind of the opposite experience. Like I wasn't really having those experiences that you were having. I was trying to, again, I was sort of trying to survive. And in my survival at the time, in high school in particular, like my father was, I very much valorized my father seemed like a hero because he, he left me alone, right? He, he gave me money and he let me sort of do, treated me like an adult, which all seemed like really cool stuff at the time because I wasn't aware of kind of the emotional life that was going on underneath it in a way that I could talk about it or access it. So that complete disengagement from my emotional life by my father, by both my parents, for that matter, um, at the time had me feeling, oh, I'm look, I'm an adult. I'm grown up. They treat me like an well, my father, he treats me like an adult. That's a really cool thing. How cool is that? Right? And all my friends thought it was really cool. You know, like that night that, uh, that uh, Jason and Steven and I decided to drive to San Francisco all mm -hmm. night, and we were at the payphones at, at Cafe Figaro where we used to go, and Jason called his mom and lied and said he's sleeping with Steven's, and Steven called his mom and lied and said he was sleeping at Jason's, and I called my dad and said, hey, I'm driving to San Francisco with Steven and Jason. We'll be back tomorrow or Sunday. And my father's response was simply like, you're, you're, you're killing me, you know, which was his favorite thing to say jokingly. And then he said like, okay, just be careful. Like I was an adult to him. He was like, okay, no big deal. And I also didn't have to lie. And that seemed like a great thing to me at the time. Like, oh, I can tell my father the truth and he listens. Like the first time I tried marijuana, I was 12. And I remember vividly sitting on the couch in the den, which later became my bedroom and saying to my father, like I tried weed. And he's like, and his response was so like beautiful and apparent from my perception of parenting. Like all he said was, what did you think of it? He That's exactly what my mom said. 
Yeah, well, sure, she probably talked to my dad and learned that trick. Yeah. But anyway, he said, he said, but enough about you, let's continue talking about me. But he said, uh, he said, you know, what did you think of it? And I said, well, it was okay, I didn't really love it. And he said, well, you know, I don't think it's healthy, I don't think it's good for you, but I trust you, and I, you know, to make the right choice about what you're going to do. And he said, like, I'm not going to tell you not to, because I realize that's ridiculous. I mean, like, it was all very adult and rational and thoughtful. I, I, he, he didn't plan it to be that way. That's the only way he knew how to respond to anything. That's why my people liked my father. I mean, I don't think the way my father responded, by the way, was all that wrong. I'm just, I wasn't using that as a way like he should have done it so differently. I'm just saying as, yeah. as, as part of the broader stream of experience with my father and his never sort of creating any boundaries for me or any discipline around my childhood, like I could do whatever I want. Mm -hmm. I never got in trouble if I didn't I didn't have any rules to bump up against, so I didn't have anything to get in trouble for, and I didn't do anything bad. I, mean, I didn't light shit on fire like you did, which is astounding to me. <laughs> I mean, I really did nothing in those days that would have warranted. I just stayed out until I wanted. I didn't have curfews. I didn't have rules. But, but I mean, that was the hardest part because I didn't know what was okay and what wasn't. Well, so, I, wasn't, I, I wasn't lighting shit on fire at 12. I was lighting shit on fire <sighs> at 7. So. Which seems even scarier to me, by the way. Like, did you put the cat in the microwave? Because that's the kind of no, thing the kids... No, come on. That's crazy. I wouldn't do that. Yeah. Anyway, so I mean, like my father, but my point was I valorized my father and into my teen years when I had all that freedom and he treated me like an adult. I didn't understand the consequences of that for my adulthood, having no boundaries and no sense of limit and no sense of what was right or wrong and no sense of any sort of structure around my life or how to build anything or how to start from point A and go to point B. You know, like I didn't have any of that. Hmm. I just had the ability to talk my way through and out of any, or into or out of anything, and that's the only tool I had in my arsenal, but that's a very weak tool when it doesn't work or when you have to stand in some kind of struggle. There's nowhere to stand with that. It just ev it evaporates. Do you still think that's a useful tool? Is that still a tool that you, that you use? Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, this was the thing. It, 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 my ability to articulate thought and to engage other human beings in a way that's meaningful is a very useful tool. No, that's not what I'm asking. That is not what, are you what I'm asking? asking. Which tool are you asking about? The ability mm. to talk your way into or out of anything. Oh yeah, I don't. I don't use. I don't feel that tool exists in me in the same way it used to. I don't have the ability to do it. I don't think, and I also don't. I don't see it the same way. In the in those days, I saw it as a way to to avoid being seen. To, to, to be apart from being found out for what was happening inside my body and my mind and my brain. Uh, I don't do that now. I don't want to not be seen. I mean, the pandemic has, that's a whole other conversation, but I mean, the pandemic has really been very hard for me in so many ways because it's, it's, it hasn't allowed me the human interaction that has uh, become sort of a way to deal with the struggles that I've had in my life, to, to be authentic and honest and direct and engaging with other human beings on a very personal level, which keeps me grounded and keeps me feeling seen. So this last year of being alone and isolated and not having almost any of those experiences has really been very, very damaging for me. Because all those friends from that, you know, of loneliness and unworthiness that, you know, were part of my childhood and accompanied me throughout most of my adulthood, but were, were put at bay by relationship and by connection, mm -hmm. uh, you know, find their way back in times when you're just alone. Mm -hmm. They don't go away. You don't get over them forever. You learn to manage them and you learn to, to s diminish their power by having other experience and other 
forces that are more positive that take their place, that push them to the side, that tell them that they don't, they're not meaningful to you anymore. And when those other kind of healthy, meaningful interactions disappear in a pandemic, <laughs> um, that's problematic. So there's that. You have anything else to say? Because I feel like you're sort of done. No. I, I'm I'm just very no I'm just I'm I'm grateful we have the opportunity to share these things and that I'm learning some of the stuff about you now. Although part of me thinks that you're not actually real because we're talking over you know screen and I see an image of you, but it feels like that Max Headroom thing from the '80s with mm-hmm, the MTV mm-hmm. character. Like I'm not sure you're real or a digital recreation of an idea I have of you. And part of me is just just grateful that we have this opportunity to share these things now. You just said that. Well, part of me is grateful that we just have the opportunity to share these things now. I, I want to hit the record player on the side so it goes off tilt, so it goes back to the next line and doesn't keep repeating itself. Well, part of me is... <laughs> what, what, do you got, what do you got on tap for the rest of the day? Let me just tell you this. Dolly wanted to go to the beach yesterday. Mm-hmm. The was, beach? Yeah, the beach. It was the first really hot day, I think, of, of, the, of the season. Uh-huh. With the sand pair, and the water. Pair, and with everything. the sand and the water and the mm-hmm. birds. And the and people. The, yeah. Mm-hmm. And trash. apparently everybody else in Los Angeles also <laughs> wanted to go to the beach Yeah, you yesterday. know how that happens. That That's a common occurrence. Yeah. So, But she wanted to go. We promised her she, she could go. It took mm-hmm. us... I'm, I'm, you ready? Yeah, I, I'm ready. It took us three hours to get to the beach to a place where we could find a place to park. Shut up. Seriously. We had to keep oh driving. God, that would have killed me. We drove to Point Magoo and there was so much traffic... Point Magoo mm-hmm. was the only place where we could park, and there was Jesus. so much traffic, it took us three hours. Yeah, that would have killed me. All right, until next time. All right, until next time. Locks in the Bagel is a production of Kenjamin Media, a curated series of conversations about things that matter. For more information about our podcast, please go to KenjaminMedia.com.